You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little man. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I had the last of my birthday excursions, bartended for funs at a work thing, talked shit over margaritas. All in all, had a very busy but very chill week. Also, I can't tell which neighbor it is. Just started screaming at their partner the second I hit record. So hopefully that does not bleed in too much because I've got a bunch of shit I got to do today. This week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got A Haunting in Venice. Now for this one, I'm going to level with you. I did briefly fall asleep in this because October has been a month. But overall, I thought it was fine. I only fell asleep for like 10 minutes. It was towards the beginning. It was fine. After after the the death, but before like shit started really going down. Um, And I was familiar with the story. It felt more like a first entry into a franchise rather than a third one. The budget has definitely diminished since Orient Express from like almost 10 years ago, I think it's been. And because I just saw saw the other two like not too long ago and was fresh in my mind to see that diminish in kind of production quality that close together was a little bit disappointing it's obvious because they haven't done crazy good at box office but you know disappointing all the same Kenneth Branagh directed this film he also starred in the film he plays Poirot and he just kind of felt tired the whole thing felt tired he is an older dude like there was nothing inherently wrong with this film there just wasn't anything inherently special about it either which is just, you know, disappointing. I d- you can probably skip her. Also, I saw the company I work for let a director wipe his ass with a classic horror franchise this week, so I am still recovering from that. But I'm pretending uh, that movie didn't happen. So for those keeping score, it's The Mummy Dragon, whatever, the 2017 Mummy, and the one that came out last weekend of horror films I'm pretending don't exist. And now on to some strike updates. <laughs> Remember when I said last week that something would have to go horribly wrong for a SAG deal not to go through? Well, I finally got one right because that's exactly what happened. Late Wednesday evening, the AMPTP walked away from the bargaining table after refusing to counter the deal that SAG had placed in front of them. For details into that, I've got an article in the show notes if you want to just go like, this is what offer- this is what was offered by the AMPTP. I don't believe the counter is out It was assumed kind of by everybody, like production companies and studios were getting ready to gear up productions. Like people, plane tickets had been purchased, sets had been reacquired, productions had come back to life. Assuming this was going to go through this week and now it's just, now we don't know when it's going to end. But it was assumed that, you know, as has been the case in the past, that when a guild like what the writers writers got a couple weeks ago, when they get a good deal like that, a monumental deal and all these breakthroughs that happened, it's kind of the unofficial rule, certainly not a rule, that 
the another guild that is also striking. This has happened at least twice before that you kind of take you kind of take a version of that because it is new. Like when residuals were introduced, everyone kind of like I believe the writers got the residuals first and then oh no, the actors got residuals first, but it was different. But like official residuals in the modern sense, everyone's deals kind of mirrored each other and then you kind of negotiate and there's been minutia ever since. But this is the first time where a guild just went absolutely unacceptable. We want way more than that. And the studios aren't going to give that. That's just, it's not going to happen. They went on strike wanting a 13% raise. They've only knocked it back down to 11% raise. And I'm not saying they don't deserve it, but for all y'all who work like normal people jobs, like when have you ever gotten an 11% raise in your life? Should it happen? Questionable. Does it happen? No. I had one coworker tell me that it happened in the 80s a bunch, but you were making like $200 a week. So like 10% of $200 is 20 bucks like that you can kind of see. But like nowadays and and yes, people are grossly underpaid. The statistics clearly show that, but it, no one's getting an 11% raise. That's just not that's just not going to happen. It's an unrealistic goal. And I try to be neutral, but like look at your own careers, jobs, whatever. When have you gotten an 11% raise that didn't come with like a title jump? So yeah, set back to my notes. So yeah, SAG is not going the road of following in line with the writers, it seems. And in addition to the raise rate that they want, they also want significantly high, higher streaming residual numbers. Um, and there's a few other minor things, but those seem to be what caused the AMPTP to walk out. They're like, well, you're not being serious about talking. So we're just going to suck you dry a little bit more. SAG then threw dirt, uh, saying that the AMPTP was lying about numbers that they released, which isn't technically true. The AMPTP claimed that the actors are asking for an additional $800 million per year with their contract. That's going to come from residuals. SAG claimed that number is 60% too high. Technically, they're both right, and technically, they're both being shifty. How is that true? Money math. It's, It's money math, and money math is confusing. This argument over this number is spawning over a number that we can't possibly know until the views of the box office dollars roll in. There's just no way to know what an actor could be compensated from one year to another because content yields those numbers. And if people aren't watching things or people aren't going to the movies, then those numbers are going to be lower. So the studios and the guilds are working from a hypothetical range of what this residual number could possibly be. So the AMPTP is using the highest number to prove their argument and to kind of make them look like greedy actors. But the guild is using the lower end of that number to make it seem like the studios are being greedy. The answer kind of as anything in life lands somewhere in the middle. No one's no one's perfect here. No one's infallible here. And I know you're supposed to always be on the side of the unions, but facts are facts and I can't <laughs> I can't turn my head away from facts. Do they deserve more money? Yes. Do they deserve what they're asking for? I will leave that with you and your own personal opinions. I am not here to provide mine. Yes, this is a podcast, but I'm not I don't pretend to have the answers to anything like this because I just I'm not that full of myself to think that I have the answers to things like this. This is a very complicated issue. But yeah, so they're both the numbers the number the AMPTP use, it it's a real number. It's just a shifty number. Averaging the two numbers out, you kind of you get something that lands about where the Writers Guild is, which is what you should be kind of aiming for. You're aiming for a compromise. 
But yeah, this is this is bad. This is um a little unprecedented, honestly. But yeah, uh, it's a mess right now. The crews are still out of work and have been definitely so since at least May, but definitely since July. And they're not going to get any kind of compensation. They're not going to get any residuals. They're not going to get any back pay. They're not going to get any of that. Uh, when all this is over, they're just going to be expected to go back to work like nothing happened with no benefits. And frankly, when these wins are taken or earned or whatever, however you want to call it, the people who will get affected are the below the line workers. So, yeah, if you if you're in the Hollywood periphery and you've got crew friends who work in, like uh, on film sets, uh, check in with them because they're having a time right now. And yeah, that's damn that that was disappointing. Not surprising at this point, but very disappointing. And now after 11 minutes of uh, rambling before I edit, broke last week's record of 10, let's get on to this week's topic. This week, we continue our look into the life and career of Alfred Hitchcock as we cover his years as a British director before a man across the pond would lure the director overseas. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Girls introduction right away. Mr. Memory, what was the secret formula you were taking out of the country? Will it be all right me telling you, sir? It was a big job to learn it. The biggest job I ever tackled. And I don't want to throw it all away. It'll be quite all right. The first feature of the new engine is its greatly increased ratio of compression, represented by R minus 1 over R to the power of gamma. Well, R represents the ratio of compression and gamma. Seen in end elevation, the axis of the two line of cylinder, angle of 65 degrees. Dimensions of when we wrapped last week, Hitchcock had just gotten back from Germany after directing his first two films, The Pleasure Garden and The Mountain Eagle. There had been some issues with getting them distributed within England, but that didn't dissuade Mr. Alfred Hitchcock's boss, Michael Balkin, from proceeding with producing Hitchcock's third film, which would be based on a novel that was based on the very real murders of Jack the Ripper, so, you know, right in Hitchcock's wheelhouse. The script was adapted by Elliot Stannard, who with Hitchcock got the film ready for shooting so fast that Balkan kind of got metaphorical whiplash. Within a month, the script had been broken down, Hitchcock had drawn up his ideas for the sets, and the entire script was already storyboarded. That's an insane amount of work for one month. Balkan was so impressed by the thoroughness, he secured Hitchcock two of the biggest stars in the UK at the time before heading out to get their other films that the studio makes distributed in the United States. Principal photography commenced on the film the first week of April at Islington Studios. Shooting one stage over was Alfred's former director boss, Graham Cutts, who referred to his new neighbor as the boy on the set. Cutts' resentment of Hitchcock, which had been born while Hitchcock worked as his AD, grew as the shooting on the film went off as Hitchcock designed. And you never like to see your enemies do better than you. The only thing that kind of, the only major cog that kind of fell in, at least during the production of this film, was how the film was going to end. Ivor Novello, the actor playing the titular lodger, was one of the biggest stars of the day and refused to be an out-and-out villain, forcing the ending of the film to change to something less ambiguous. Initially, the audience wasn't supposed to know whether or not the lodger was the killer. Ivor didn't want to be seen as even a hypothetical killer, so the ending had to be changed. 
I won't spoil the ending for you, though. When Balkan returned from abroad, Cuts was green with jealousy over his former right hand having at last officially outshone him. Without any concrete evidence, because I very much doubt Hitchcock was showing Cuts anything, Cuts began running around the lot, telling anyone that would listen that the lodger was going to ruin the reputation of the studio. As shooting continued, Hitchcock's comfort in the director's chair grew and grew. The entire film was finished by early July of 1926, but because of Cutts' bemoaning, C.M. Wolf, one of the producers on the film, and he was also in like the studio hierarchy and was the one directly in charge of distributing films for the studio, informed Hitchcock that his third film would also be shelved from release. Apparently, he listens to Cuts. I guess somebody should. They, they shouldn't. Um, I don't know what I'm saying. There were also rumors that Balkan had also hated the film, but since the film had been a little spendy, Balkan knew he had to find an alternative to shelving a third film by Alfred Hitchcock. His decision to try and save the film would alter the steadily nosediving trajectory of Hitchcock's career. Balkan took out Ivor Montague, a 22-year-old Cambridge graduate and member of the British Film Society with an intellectual talent for filmmaking. Balkan showed the film to Montague, who made a few suggestions as to what might punch it up, including some minor reshoots. Overall, however, Montague thought the film was great. Hitchcock was summoned, and despite being a bit resentful that someone younger than him was telling him what to do with his own film, he wasn't so full of himself that he couldn't see that Montague was brought to help him, not hinder. So, scenes were reshot, title cards were cut down from 300 to 80, and Hitchcock believed that, yes, the notes had improved his film. The Lodger was soon screened at a trade show, and the critics loved it. Soon, not only did The Lodger have a release date, but so did The Pleasure Garden and The Mountain Eagle. Though, unanimously, everyone seemed most eager to see The Lodger. The three films would release in the first five months of 1927. The hype for The Lodger was so high, in fact, that producers and heads from other studios were interested in getting Hitchcock on their payrolls once Hitchcock's next two films on his contract with Balkan were completed. Hitchcock eventually signed with British International Pictures, a contract that came with a pretty decent-sized pay bump and got him away from that a-hole cuts. Before all that, however, Hitchcock had some promises to keep. On December 2nd, 1926, Hitchcock and Alma Revel, his fiancée and sometime collaborator, were married at long last in a Roman Catholic ceremony. From this moment on, Alma was the definitive final voice of any of her husband's films before it was distributed, even if she was working on a different project or working for a different studio. On January 24th, 1927, nearly two years after they'd set out to Germany to make the damn thing, The Pleasure Garden was finally released and Hitchcock was declared, quote, a young man with a mastermind by one member of the British press. Three weeks later, when The Lodger, a story of the London Fog, was released, Alfred Hitchcock had officially become the toast of the town. For the first time in British history, the director of a film was hyped more than the film's stars. And that's saying something, because like I've said, they were two of the biggest stars of the day. This would be like that dude who didn't direct The Exorcist getting more attention than Brad Pitt. Like, this was huge. The film was declared in one trade paper that it, quote, is possible that this film is the finest British production ever made. 
After shooting the last two films on his Balkan contract, Downhill from 1927 and Easy Virtue from 1928, both of which weren't received well as audiences wanted something more thrilling from Hitchcock, he was on to his next studio. Hitchcock would soon discover, however, that working at British International Pictures was going to be a different beast. When he arrived, he found out that BIP, as we'll call it going forward, hadn't arranged a film for their new director. Instead, they gave him the freedom to kind of do what he wanted, which for some reason was a film on prize fighting called The Ring. Not something you would associate with, like, Hitchcock, which was also his first original script that he wrote by himself. The film was received with rave reviews and called the best British film ever made by critics. I've not seen that one, but I think I'm going to try and track it down this week because I am curious, but I didn't have time this week to watch it. Now an established director, and with maybe a little bit of an ego given some of his most recent press, Hitchcock penned an open letter openly stating that one day he planned to have full control over all of his films, meaning he'd get to make his films exactly how he wanted with no studio interference. BIP's official response to this is unknown, but we've got a pretty good idea considering the fact that the next two films assigned to Hitchcock were clear moves to remind him who was paying the bills. One was written by another man on contract at BIP, and the other was an adaptation of a novel. With that, Hitchcock ended his first year at his new studio wholly disappointed, and he knew that despite maybe the ring, his BIP films were far from his best. 1928 started with the news that Alma was pregnant with their first and what would end up being their only child. Hitchcock was reportedly disgusted by the entirety of the pregnancy as he didn't like the way the very petite Alma looked as the pregnancy progressed. Just some good old-fashioned misogyny for you on this Sunday. Also, some hypocriticalness, hypocriticism, hypocriticism, because, you know, he was not a thin man, especially at this time. Not to body shame, but it hypocritical is hypocritical. And also, she was making a person, so not even the same thing. Anyway, between work and impending fatherhood, by the spring of that year, the director was reportedly exhausting to be around, just a huge, just joy vacuum. Patricia Alma Hitchcock was born on July 7th, 1928, and two weeks later, both Alfred and Alma had returned to work. While BIP still held a tight leash on Hitchcock, they had converted one of their studios to be able to shoot sound pictures. The jazz singer had come out about two years prior. That's the, That was the first sound picture for the skippers of the pod or the ones that just found me through looking for Hitchcock stuff. And before long, sound pictures had become all the rage. In order to keep up with the Americans, BIP needed to embrace this new technology, and they had their technically skilled new young director take first crack at the new facilities. Hitchcock's 10th film, 1929's Blackmail, adapted from a popular book, therefore became the first British talkie. Parts of the film were silent, as they'd already shot the majority of the film that way. Most sources state that Hitchcock thought the idea was stupid to try and convert part of a film into sound, and there are stories that he reshot almost the entire film with sound, but in reality, the silent version was just sneakily enhanced to include sound. If anybody could sneakily add sound to a silent film, Hitchcock's probably one of the few that could do it. The director used the American-imported RCA sound system as kind of a special effect for this film, because like I said, you know, it was already shot in silent. For example, stressing the word knife in a conversation with a woman suspected of murder. By the by, this production was such a big deal that the Duchess of York, the future Queen of England slash Elizabeth II's mother, visited the set. She was apparently a huge cinephile. 
This film was also met with acclaim when it was released and features Hitchcock's first lengthy cameo in one of his films, not just like a, oop, there I am in the background thing. B.I.P. thanked him for this very successful film by giving him another one of those play movies he loved so much to direct. That was sarcasm. While shooting, Alma was finishing up an adaptation of the book Enter Sir John, which when directed by Hitchcock would be retitled Murder with an exclamation point at the end. Hitchcock continued his experiments with sound that he'd started with blackmail with that film. After a prolonged holiday around the world, Hitchcock returned to the UK with the idea for number 17, which he and Alma had come up with while vacationing. Unfortunately, the film was slapped together so quickly that Hitchcock and Alma's vision kind of got lost in the sauce. Hitchcock would later refer to the film as a quote unquote disaster. And it was so bad, it was actually delayed for a year. So it didn't come out until 1932. More play movies followed, as well as Mary, which was a German-language adaptation of Murder. One film that he liked that he made from this time that was also a flop was 1931's Rich and Strange, and it's considered by some historians to be a semi-autobiographic look into the Hitchcock's marriage. After making at least four films, probably five, 1931 came to a close with Hitchcock's depression at an all-time high, with him questioning whether or not he even had a future in film as his BIP contract also came to an end. After a couple of years flailing and freelancing, in spring of 1934, Hitchcock signed a multi-film contract with Gaumont British and was once again working for Michael Balkin, who had since become the executive in charge of production at that company. Gainsborough and Gaumont British had become sister studios back in 1927. Hitchcock's first film for the company, The Man Who Knew Too Much from 1934, was a massive hit for the studio, the comeback he desperately needed, though it was released as part of a double feature. This was not the original intention when the film was made. This decision was made by C.M. Wolfe, who was still on Balkan's payroll, just hating on Hitchcock films and being historically incorrect. Wolf had also waited to do the double feature bullshit when Balkan went overseas, which is just sneaky as hell, because back then, of course, way harder to get in contact with someone in a timely manner before cell phones and emails. The film was a hit, by the way, providing both Gaumont British and Hitchcock with their sorely needed comebacks, like I said. CM Wolf, after that, shockingly, never an issue for Hitchcock again. Also, that just reminded me, just part of like old communication, this is, this is a uh, segue, but this week we were playing um, a trivia game with some coworkers. I was playing a trivia game with some coworkers, rather. And it's if you've played Jackbox games, there's like the trivia murder party. And if you get a question wrong, you can still kind of save yourself from being murdered and one of the mini games involved a rotary telephone and I'm 34 I'm not old but these children are like a decade or so younger than me and none of them knew what a rotary telephone was or how to like use one so I won because I was old and knew how to use a rotary telephone and it made me both equal parts proud of myself and also made me want to walk into the sea. Anyway, while all of this bullshit was happening, Hitchcock had already set to work on his second film on the new contract, which was The 39 Steps. This film was so extensively acclaimed in the UK that it at long last garnered Hitchcock recognition in the United States. It also fully established the quintessential Hitchcock blonde, and we'll get into that a little later this month. The origins of this had, of course, started with The Lodger eight years prior as the serial killer in that film had a penchant for blondes, as did Hitchcock himself. Loved a blonde. 
I'll leave it for now with how Roger Ebert once described the trope, saying, quote, The female characters in his films reflected the same qualities over and over again. They were blondes. They were icy and remote. They were imprisoned in costumes that subtly combined fashion and fetishism. They memorized the men, who often had a physical or psychological handicap. Sooner or later, every Hitchcock woman was humiliated. John Buchan, author of the novel The 39 Steps, on which the film is loosely based, would state that the film was actually an improvement over his novel, and how many times do you ever hear that? This film was also one of the first to introduce the MacGuffin plot device into the film sphere, which, if you don't know what a MacGuffin is, it's an item or goal the protagonist is pursuing, one that otherwise has no narrative value or value to the audience. In the 39 Steps, the MacGuffin is a stolen set of design plans. If you're confused, just think of, like, the most famous MacGuffin occurs in the Maltese Falcon. It's exactly what you think it is. It's the Maltese Falcon. It's it's something that in the real world, in any other circumstance, would have absolutely no value. But in the world of the film, it means absolutely everything. Another one's Unobtainium from Avatar. If you go to AMC theaters, the bar in the AMC theaters is called MacGuffins. It's named after this trope. Um, my my AMC hasn't had the napkins in a while, but the napkins used to have MacGuffins on there. So if you want to get some very sugary drinks and a cheap film education, go to MacGuffins. Um, and if you're you know curious, the term MacGuffin actually comes from screenwriter Angus McPhail, but Hitchcock popularized the term. So there you go. It was also around this time that Hitchcock became notorious for pranks against his cast and crew, a practice that had carried on before and throughout the rest of his career. These jokes range from simple and innocent to just crazy, maniacal, and a little bit, you know, gently touching the conventions, the, the rules laid out in the Geneva Convention, though I guess that didn't exist yet. For example, he once hosted a dinner party where he dined all the food blue because he claimed there weren't enough blue foods. He even had a horse delivered to the dressing room of a friend. He also had a weird laxative war with a coworker, but I didn't feel like going into the details on that on this because I don't find shit humor to be funny. But, you know, there you have it. Also, sneaking laxatives into people's food is kind of fucked up. Hitchcock's next major-ish films came in the form of two spy thrillers in 1936, the most well-known today being Sabotage and the lesser-known being Secret Agent in my definitive rankings, which, as we all know, are very, very prestigious. Uh, Secret Agent, Hitchcock had actually gotten bored with halfway through directing, which is, you know, encouraging. It's nice, it's nice, you know, sometimes it's nice when they're just people are like, I, you know, when you phone it in at work, he phoned it in directing a movie. It's because that's his job. It's wild to think, given like what we're going to cover in the next two weeks, like those films. And he's just being like, eh, whatever. This one's not it. The film also has the distinction, secret agent, that being said, of the unfortunate president of Hitchcock's infamous treatment of his leading ladies. One minute he'd be supportive and caring to the woman in question, the next manipulative and cruel. It was also a clearly stressful time in the director's life, not excusing it, just, you know, people are complicated, as Hitchcock tipped the scale at his highest weight to date of 300 pounds as he reached 40. And the dude was maybe like, if he was 5'5", I'd be surprised. He was not a tall man. So 300 pounds on a 5'5 or below frame, that's, that's, you gotta be miserable. He was also becoming less and less articulate, even to those who knew him best. Hitchcock first visited the United States in the summer of 1937 with Alma. He assured the British press before leaving that despite the overseas studios and producers having had taken a keen interest in him and that were eager to wine and dine the biggest director in British cinema once he got across the Atlantic, he had no intention of joining them. 
Of the many people that he met in his time there, Hitchcock would meet David O. Selznick's people for the first time. And if you don't know who David O. Selznick is, basically all you need to know is by this point, that man was probably the biggest independent producer in Hollywood at a time where it was impossible pretty much to be an independent producer. Despite promising talks between Selznick's people and Hitchcock, Hitchcock decided that he didn't really want to leave his cushy life in the UK behind just yet. The one thing that might compel him, however, and likely did compel him not long after, was the dwindling UK film market as unrest in mainland Europe began to grow, amongst other things. It wasn't just that. And uh, yeah, like I said, his mind would change rather quickly. It soon became clear to pretty much everyone that Alfred Hitchcock was too big for the British film industry. He had received numerous offers from producers in the United States by this point, but had turned them all down because he either hated the films they wanted him to do, while also being hesitant to become a cog in the studio system. Selznick was the one who kind of knocked on the door the hardest and kept pursuing Hitchcock, despite knowing of the director's reservations. During the courtship, Hitchcock informed Selznick of an early copy of a novel he was reading that he was quite enjoying. The book was written by Daphne du Maurier, I believe is how you say it, the daughter of a friend of his. Hitchcock none too subtly informed the Selznick crew that maybe they just might want to get the rights for that book before it released later that summer. Hitchcock had wanted to purchase them himself, you see, but they were out of his price range and I guess there was no friends and family discount. Selznick countered the offer as they wanted him to do something more mystery forward and not a gothic romantic thriller number because they were only promising one film, not a not a series. As the two volleyed cables back and forth across the sea trying to work out a deal that would land Hitchcock across the pond, talks paused temporarily when Hitchcock let loose in the British press that he was disappointed by the offers Selznick was slinging at him. Of course, this got back to Selznick, which was the intention anyway, let's be honest. Hitchcock had made it clear in his own little passive-aggressive way that he would not become a cog in the studio system machine. What did eventually lure Hitchcock over was the promise to direct a film, ironically, entitled The Titanic, about, you guessed it, the sinking of the Titanic. Get the British guy across the Atlantic by having him tell a story about a ship that did not make it across the Atlantic. Hitchcock could get into this idea-ish, and he'd also stated that he'd been thinking about potentially doing something about the Titanic. He liked the ship sinking part mostly, not so much the shit that would have to preface it because you can't just like show ship sinking for two hours, though if Hitchcock directed it, I'd probably watch it. I'm not going to lie. Hitchcock had his assistant keep in contact with the DeMarie people also just in case the rights became affordable. In the meantime, actor-producer Charles Lawton and his producing partner had bought the film rights for DeMarie's previous novel, Jamaica Inn, and got Hitchcock to direct it for them. This film would be the last UK Hitchcock film until the 1970s and fulfilled his current contract. When it came to the film, Hitchcock could not have given less of a shit compared to his efforts in his earlier films, probably not Secret Agent, but it, it lacks that Hitchcock polish you, you get used to watching his films. Hitchcock's deal with Selznick was signed on July 14th, 1938, after Hitchcock and Alma had gone for one final push to see what else Hollywood might offer. RKO very nearly almost got Hitchcock. As two of the major members of the British film industry, being Hitchcock and Alma, and two incredibly smart people at that, they had conceded that changes were happening not only in their field, but in Europe as well. And maybe it'd be a good idea to kind of just be somewhere else while that happened. Just one year after being on the fence, both were suddenly quietly eager to leave the UK behind. 
The contract offered to Hitchcock by the Selznick brothers would be for just one picture, for which he'd be paid 50K for 20 weeks of work. That's about $1.1 million in today money. And the plan was for the Titanic film to be option A, with the DeMarie project as plan B, as they were still working on a deal for that. Hitchcock returned to the UK six days later to finish out his UK obligations. Dumarier was unhappy with how the Jamaica in script production and all that was going and required quite a lot of promising on the Selznick's part that what was being done with her previous novel's adaptation would not occur with the next because obviously she knew Hitchcock was hoping to direct the next one as well. And she's like, well, if you screwed up this one, I'm not going to give you a second chance, which is something that certain studios should do when thinking about hiring their horror directors. I'm not bitter. (laughs) She was assured by being pointed to previous Selznick-produced adaptations of classic novels like Anna Karenina, as well as the very highly publicized care that was currently being put into the script for the currently being Selznick-produced Gone with the Wind. Dumarie was convinced and signed the film rights over to Selznick in early August 1938. The production of Jamaica Inn was hellish to say the very least, so much so that Hitchcock actively tried to forget it for the rest of his life. Charles Lawton was a co-producer on the movie, and he reportedly interfered greatly with Hitchcock's direction. Lawton demanded that, or is it Lofton? I think it's Lofton. I've been saying it wrong. Lofton demanded that Hitchcock give his character greater screen time, which forced Hitchcock to reveal that his character was a villain earlier in the film than Hitchcock had initially planned, and earlier than, I'm sure, what happens in the novel. Lofton's acting was also a problem. He portrayed his character as having a like a delicate walk that went to the beat of a German waltz that he sang to himself in his head. If you've seen it, uh, there's clips on YouTube. It's it's a choice. Hitchcock thought it was out of character, but Ty went to the person producing the film, unfortunately for him. Meanwhile, if you need a little, you know, ego boost, another Hitchcock hit, The Lady Vanishes from 1938, released towards the end of the production on Jamaica Inn and was arguably Hitchcock's best film to date. The film was about a British spy posing as a governess that disappears on a train journey through the fictional European country of Bandrika. The Lady Vanishes became the biggest British film up to that point, and the film saw Hitchcock receive the 1938 New York Film Critics Circle Award for Best Director. In a way, it was kind of like his farewell feature to the UK. In February 1939, the Hitchcocks sold their country estate, as well as ending the lease to their two-bedroom London apartment that they'd lived in before they'd made it professionally, but never quite seemed to be able to give up. On March 1st, they were America-bound. Jamaica Inn, Hitchcock's last fully UK feature, was not well received when it released on May 15th, 1939, but by that point, Hitchcock was already deep in the trenches, shooting his American debut. The English lady, where is she? There has been no English lady here. What? There has been no English lady here. There has. She sat there in the corner. You saw her, you spoke to her, she sat next to you. But it's ridiculous. She took me to the dining car and came back here with me. Who went and came back alone? Maybe you don't understand. I mean the lady who looked after me when I was knocked out. Ah, perhaps it's maker you forget, eh? Well, I may be very dense, but if this is some sort of a joke, I'm afraid I don't see the point. Oh, steward, you served me tea just now. Yes, madame. Well, have you seen the lady I was with, the English lady? But madame was alone. Okay, Eugene. 
Pardon, madame, he make mistake. Well, of course, he must remember the little English lady. She ordered the tea and paid for it. No, it is you paying. Caproki. Nagraditen. You say to look at the bill. I will look, madame. But she gave you a special packet of tea. You can't have forgotten that. The tea was ours, madame. I received no packet. But you did. I know what happened. Pardon, madame, the bill. Uh, tea for one. But that's not right. Perhaps madame would care to examine the bills herself. No, I wouldn't. The whole thing's too and that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterbox account, which features my watch list, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out. The link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find me, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got the buy me a coffee, where you buy me a coffee. Once I'm done with recording, I'm going out and about for a little bit. So I have not had any coffee yet but I will later. Um, and also last week I was too caffeinated and I'm hyper again recording this week. So I don't know what the hell's going on with me. Maybe the meds are working. I also got merch. Check it out. The link in the show notes. Next week, we're covering the beginning up until probably the height of Hitchcock's American career. I haven't quite figured out where to split it. I have ideas, but you know, it's going to be the films. It's, it's going to be started. You're going to start hearing the films that like the more casual film people. Not Next week, we'll start getting into those. You'll you'll have heard of ones that we'll talk about next week. So this was a little bit of a, uh, if these first two weeks were like, I want to know about the big ones. They're, they're next week. They're, they're starting next week. I promise. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.